We are in the middle of a sermon series. We are going through each book of the Bible, and I hope you've noticed that there's really one big storyline to the Bible, and each week as we look at each book, we're talking about how that book contributes to uh, the, the bigger story. And one element of the bigger story is this element of paradise. When the story begins, in the very beginning, there's a garden, and it's a garden of paradise. Everything is just right. And then, of course, paradise is lost, uh, but there's this hope and this promise that it's going to be regained in the future. And in fact, the book of Revelation talks about this. Revelation 2.7 says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So there's a paradise at the beginning. There's a paradise at the end. And all along the way, there are a handful of moments where you get the sense that it's about to happen. Like the kingdom of God's about to be established. Paradise is about to be restored. This is it. And today, the passage we're looking at, the book we're looking at is one of those moments. And uh, we're going to talk about that and talk about what that means for us today. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 9. If you are able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9, 1 Kings chapter 9. And this is the very inspired word of God. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you... If you walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the promise and the hope of a paradise. I pray you'll use your word today by your spirit to encourage us and prepare us so that we are ready for that day when your kingdom is restored fully. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. First of all, I want to talk about the anticipation of paradise. In our passage, God is addressing Solomon after the temple has been completed. And uh, we'll get to that here in a second. But first, I want to kind of rewind and talk about how we get to this point uh, of Solomon and the temple. And so just a quick summary. In 1 Kings chapter 2, David dies. Solomon is established as the king. Chapter 2, verse 12 says his kingdom was firmly established. In chapter 3, God asks Solomon, what do you want me to give you? And Solomon says, I I request wisdom. And God says, I'm very pleased with that request. I'll give you wisdom. In fact, in addition to wisdom, I'll give you wealth 
and a lot of other things. And by the way, praying for wisdom is a great thing to do. I, I, I pray for wisdom daily, uh, often, and uh, God blesses there. First uh, Kings 4, Solomon increases in wisdom and wealth and success. And by the way, he's going to be the author of some of our books that we call wisdom literature, like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Listen to chapter 4, verse 34. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. In chapter 6, Solomon builds a temple. And this takes seven years to complete. In chapter 8, they bring the ark of God into the temple. And Solomon asks for God's blessing. It's a great chapter, a great passage to, to, to meditate on. God's, uh, Solomon's prayer to God and asking for his blessing. In chapter 9, God responds to this request. It's the text that we read earlier as we stood. God tells him to walk with integrity of heart, uprightness, and do all that I have commanded you. And he says, if you will obey, there will be great blessing. But he says, if you disobey, there will be severe consequences. In chapter 10, we have this, this, this queen, the queen of Sheba, who comes to experience Solomon and his wisdom and his glory. And in chapter 10, verse 5, it says her breath was taken away. She's taken away as she sees the kingdom of God and all its glory. Listen to what she says, chapter 10, verse 9. She says, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. So we're at this point in the storyline where you say, this is it, right? The promises have been fulfilled. It looks like paradise is about to be restored. And let's, let's just remind ourselves what the promises have been all along the way, especially to Abraham, especially to David. And let's talk about how we see these promises coming and aligning and being fulfilled in Solomon in his day. First of all, remember, Abraham was promised land and a nation, many descendants. And here we go. Fast forward to Solomon's day. Do they have land? Yes, they do. Thank you. Do they have uh, descendants and children? Yes, there are. It's a great nation, great land. Chapter 3. I'm sorry, not chapter 3. Number 3. Abraham was promised God's presence. I will be with you. I will bless you. Do we see that in Solomon's day? Yes, we've got the temple. It's built. The presence of God, the glory of God fills the temple. In fact, 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11 says the priests were knocked off their feet because of the glory of God. So do we have the presence of God in Israel? Yes. Do we have His blessing? Yes. And remember the fourth part of the promise to Abraham. You will be a blessing to the nations. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Are we starting to see that on Solomon's watch? Yes, we are. The nations are coming and the nations are admiring. And they're saying, wow. Queen of Sheba is coming and recognizing and acknowledging the God of Israel. And we also have Solomon praying for the nations. Listen to this prayer. This is a great prayer. This is a missionary prayer. Listen to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 43. Solomon says, Hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. That's an incredible missionary prayer prayed by King Solomon. So we are seeing Israel is, is starting to become a blessing to the nations, praying for foreigners, foreigners coming. I mean, it, it's happening, right? 
Let's remind ourselves of the promises made to David. We we saw this a couple weeks ago. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We said there were four key aspects to the promise. David was promised he's going to be given a great name and a dynasty. God's going to make him a house. And here we have Solomon, David's son. And we see this great name. We, We see the greatness of Solomon. Listen, for example, 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Secondly, God promised David a place of rest. You're going to have rest in the land, and you're going to have rest from your enemies. Do we see that under Solomon? Yes. There's not a lot of war. In fact, the kingdom expands, and the kingdom of God is at rest, at peace from enemies. Third, there was a promise to David that there would be a fatherly type of relationship. God would be like a father to the king, and the king would be like a son, and God would discipline when there needed to be discipline. And now here we have Solomon praying to God in chapter 8, huge, long, lengthy, wonderful prayers. And we have God responding in chapter 9, and we're going to see discipline. So we see the fatherly type of relationship between God and Solomon. And then fourth, David was promised he was going to have a forever kingdom. His kingdom was going to be forever. It's going to last forever. And we see that same language here with Solomon. Look at chapter 9, verse 5. God says, Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So here's what I want to point out. All of the elements are coming together. It's all aligning. The promises are being fulfilled. And now we're just kind of waiting, anticipating, like this is it. right? There's an anticipation here. This coming Thursday is Thanksgiving. I always like Thanksgiving. I'm partial to Thanksgiving. For some reason, I kind of, some ways, almost like it better than Christmas because it reminds me of Christmas, but you don't have all the gifts and the drama and the commercialism and the pressures that you feel around Christmas time. Thanksgiving, you can actually rest and enjoy and delight. And I I think that's what holidays are supposed to be about. But uh, we, we look forward to holidays. We plan for them. I'm guessing you've already got plans. We've already made at least one, two trips to the store you know, to get just the right items and planning dishes. And we've been talking about what we're going to eat on this day for for weeks now. Like we've literally been talking about what we're going to eat at one meal, which is going to take us about five minutes. But we've been planning for it, right? And life is like this. We have all these things that we get excited about and we plan for. And that's good. That's wonderful. But there's always something we're planning for. In fact, I can almost guarantee you that sitting around our lunch table, eating Thanksgiving dinner, one of my kids is going to say to me, can we put the tree up today? You know? Can we start putting lights up on the house? And I was like, can we just be thankful for a day? You know? We just have Thanksgiving and just enjoy, give thanks, do very little. <laughs> right? But it's, it's the next thing. Like, it's time for Christmas. We've got to start planning for Christmas. Let's put a tree up. By the way, how, how many of you have already decorated for Christmas? Anybody? Nobody? A handful? Okay, very good. No judgment from me. No judgment from me. I just point out, you are very much anticipating Christmas. Like, you're, you're, you're looking forward to it. And that's the point I want to make here. We have things that we look forward to, that we long for, that we anticipate. And that's not strange. This is universal. I mean, people do this. You go to cultures, nations. There's, there's an instinct inside of all people to, to plan, to look forward, to anticipate 
And that's a good thing. That's not foreign. That's not strange. That's, that's very normal. And it's very good. If you have things you're looking forward to, wonderful. Uh, Romans 8 actually says even the creation is, is groaning and longing and waiting for redemption. So it's a, it's a part of living in the, the world we live in. But, uh, but the Christian understanding, biblical understanding, recognizes that this, this longing, this anticipating is ultimately pointing to something much bigger. It's not just about Thanksgiving. It's not just about Christmas. These are just little examples. They're little things. They're little tastes. We have these little tastes, and that's good. But ultimately, what they're pointing toward is this bigger taste and this bigger craving and this groaning for redemption and for paradise. That's what we're wanting. That's what we're craving. That's what we're longing for. It's what we remember. We have a memory, a distant memory of, of, of a, of a of a past paradise called the Garden of Eden. And we're longing for a future one. So it's a good thing when you experience the little, the little things, this little taste of Thanksgiving, a little taste of the anticipation of Thanksgiving or Christmas. Or, you know, there, there, there are bigger things. You know, there's uh, people anticipate and look forward to marriage. Just want to be married. Look forward to that day. Or have kids. We want to have kids. We look forward to that day. We're anticipating that. I anticipate the day when I, you know, don't have to go to school anymore. I can work. I can have money. I can earn money. Look forward to that. And then before you know it, you're anticipating the day when you can retire and not have to work. Right? If I could just get to a point where I don't have to work. I'm looking so much forward to this vacation that's coming up. And you plan for it. You get, have you noticed you get back from a vacation and you immediately start thinking, what are we going to do next time? We're always anticipating something. And that's okay. But let it be a reminder that it's pointing to something else. We're, we're ultimately craving something, and it's, 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 it's ultimately what we're craving is, is the kingdom of God. Ultimately, we're craving paradise restored. And so, uh, you know, I do want to remind you, uh, whatever it is that you're anticipating and looking forward to, don't think, you know, if I can just experience this, then I'll be content and everything will be right. Remind yourself, you've thought this before. Right? You've had this feeling before. If I can just get to this place in my life, if I can just get to this stage, then all the world will be right and I'll be good. Right? You've, you've thought that before. You've felt that way before. I remind my kids about that. You've had this argument before. If I just get this present, I'll never ask for any other present again because I'll never want any other present. You're going to want another present. Right? So in the same way, whatever that, that is that you're, you're longing for right now, even if you get it, you're still going to need something else. There's still going to be something more. There's still going to be another dream. And this brings us to talk, secondly, about the unraveling of paradise. Unfortunately, the story here in 1 Kings is going to follow the exact same pattern we've seen over and over and over. And we almost get tired of it. We saw it at the very beginning. The garden, it was good. Things were right. And then sin entered and everything unraveled. And then not too much longer, God decided He's going to literally wipe everything out with the flood and start all over with the righteous man and his family. And God does that. And you're thinking, well, He's resetting it. And now we're going to get the kingdom of God on earth, right? Wrong. Sin enters in, unravels. Everything unravels. And then you got God delivering His people out of Egypt and slavery, and He meets with them on the mountain and says, here it is, we're about to start again. It's like, you know, we're going to start again. Here's the commandments. And how long does that last? Not long at all. And they start, they build, two, they build a golden calf. 
Right? And, and, and it unravels. Paradise unravels. And then we got God providing this land. Incredible, miraculous land. Rest from enemies. God provides a land. And how long does that last? Well, not even a generation. The next generation forgets, doesn't know. Sin enters in and the whole thing unravels. You got the judges. And now here we are. And I think it's interesting that it literally it takes two chapters. And that reminds me of Genesis 1. Genesis 1, creation, life is good, garden, uh, paradise. Two chapters later, two chapters later, Genesis 3 unravels fallen world. Right? Chapter 9, it looks like the kingdom's about to be set up. All the promises fulfilled. Here we go, kingdom of God. Two chapters later, chapter 11, we start to see it unravel. So look with me. Chapter 11, verse 1, 1 Kings. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Uh-oh. There we go. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said, the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives. Let's just ponder that for a second. I'm sure there's a joke in there somewhere. I haven't found it yet. But, uh, one thought that I had, though, was if, if, you cons- if he had a wedding with each of these, and let's just say for the sake of the argument, he also had kind of the rehearsal dinner like we have in our day. That's like four years of his life just in weddings, right? So he might have, he might have had wisdom, but he wasn't all wise, right? He had 700 wives who were princesses, by the way, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So Solomon goes after many women. That's a problem. With foreign gods, that's a problem. The problem here is not that the nationality of the women, per se. Uh, for example, uh, Boaz will, is commended for marrying Ruth, who is a Moabite. But she's a Moabite who's committed to the one true and living God. So the problem is the faith of these women, and the problem is the number of these women, and this is going to lead to his downfall. But there's a great principle here for us to, to, to remind ourselves of, and that is it's so important that if you're a believing Christian that you marry someone who has very similar faith convictions that you have. It's very important to, to marry someone who has the same convictions as you, and, that, and that doesn't, I don't mean by that they also believe in God. I mean, there's a sense in which everybody believes in God in our country, right? And there's a sense in which everybody believes in God. But I'm talking about have the same specific faith convictions that you have. And if that's not important to you, then you're not going to be looking for somebody who has the same faith convictions. And so you have to go in with a commitment. Like you have to have a pre-commitment. I'm only going to date people. I'm only going to talk to people. I'm only going to start conversations that could potentially lead somewhere with people who have the same kinds of faith convictions that I have. Because if you don't start with that, with that commitment to that, you're going to end up kind of hanging around somebody and you're going to go, well, I mean, he's good looking and he believes in God 
And, you know, maybe I can kind of win him over. I'm sure over time, you know, I'll win him over to the faith. And that's, a, that's, a, that's very risky. Right? That's what some people call missionary dating. And it often doesn't turn out so well. So I'm, I'm encouraging you to have a pre-commitment that says, I'm only going to start conversations that could potentially lead to serious relationships that could potentially lead to marriage. I'm only going to start those conversations with people who I know have the same specific convictions about the Christian faith that I have. And by the way, let's, let's think common sense-wise. Where might you find those kind of people? Probably in church. All right? Whatever church you, you have convictions, like this is the church, I believe what this church believes, that would be a good example of a place to find other people who have similar faith convictions, at least pretty likely. Or, or perhaps Christian ministry. A Christian ministry that's very like-minded with your particular convictions would be a great place. I'm not saying go to church in order to get married. I'm not saying go participate in a Christian ministry to get married. But I'm saying go to the places where the people hang out who have these kind of convictions. And, and you're likely to find somebody who, who would share these kind of convictions that you could potentially enter into a relationship with. Solomon didn't follow this wisdom. I think this is just common sense wisdom. Solomon didn't find it. Follow it. And we see the consequences of this. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 11. Listen to the consequences that come. By the way, God warned him these consequences would come. This is not new information. God warned him in chapter 9. We read about it. Now look at the consequences for his unfaithfulness. Chapter 11, verse 11. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon... Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. God says, I am taking the kingdom away from you. I'm giving it to your servant. His servant's name, by the way, is Jeroboam. And this is the point in the storyline where the kingdoms are divided. We now have two kingdoms, not one. There's been one. There's been one king. King David, King Solomon, it doesn't last very long. And now there's a division. And in the north you have the ten tribes, and in the south you have the two tribes. The two tribes are called Judah and Benjamin. Uh, The northern kingdoms are led initially by Jeroboam. The southern kingdom is led initially by Rehoboam, Solomon's son. The capital of the northern kingdom is going to be Samaria, the capital of the southern kingdom, Jerusalem. Oftentimes in the Bible, it'll refer to the northern kingdom simply as Israel. And a lot of times in the Bible, it'll refer to the southern kingdom as Judah. And so it's just good to know these things when you're reading in the Old Testament and you see Israel, the context is going to determine, but a lot of times it's a reference to the ten northern tribes. When you read Judah or Jerusalem, a lot of times it's a reference to the the two southern tribes. The northern kingdom is the more corrupt of the two. Immediately, Jeroboam is going to set up other places for worship because he doesn't want people going to Jerusalem. So he says, let's set up other places. And he's going to set up a place in Dan in the north, and he's going to set up a place in Bethel. And for those of us who went to Israel several years ago, we got to see the site in Dan, literally where he had built the altar. And, And he also, by the way, brought in a golden calf did the very thing that God's people had done in the past. You say, did you not, have you not read history? Right? This is not good. It doesn't go well. 
but these are going to be referred to as the high sites, the high places. So anytime you read about the high places, it's these other sites. They're only supposed to worship in Jerusalem from this point forward, but they set up other places for worship, the high places. And, uh, and, and there's going to be civil war that's going to take place between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and there's going to be war that take place with surrounding nations. And it's only going to take 200 years for the northern kingdom to fall. From this point forward, only 200 years, and they will fall to Assyria and will be exiled to Assyria. And perhaps one reason is because they have no godly kings. Another reason is because their whole start, their whole foundation is a breaking away from Jerusalem and Judah. But it's, a, it's God's judgment. Uh, the, the southern kingdom, on the other hand, is going to last 400 years. So we still have 400 more years of activity and kings uh, and they'll eventually be exiled to Babylon. But you know, perhaps part of the reason why they last as long as they do is because they do have a handful of good kings. They have some evil kings uh, that match the, the evilness of the northern kings, but they also have some good, some good kings in the southern kingdom. But nevertheless, here's the point I'm making. Here's the point where we are in the storyline where it unravels. And it's going to unravel. In 200 years, northern kingdom's gone. 400 years, southern kingdom is exiled. So I mentioned earlier anticipation, anticipating holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and I said, that's a good thing. If you have anticipations for things, that's a good thing. That means you got things you're looking forward to. That's wonderful. But now I want to focus on, on the, the, the fact that the things we anticipate, it's never perfect. Have you ever noticed that? The things you look forward to and anticipate, they're never perfect. They never turn out exactly like you want them to. You know, for example, you may say, well, it was a wonderful holiday, but I sure wish that grandma was here. I sure wish grandpa could have been here for this one. Right? There's always something that's kind of missing. Or, or maybe you, you wish someone wasn't there. <laughs> it would have been perfect if he hadn't come. <laughs> then we could have really had a nice holiday, right? Just being honest. Or you know, something wasn't quite right. What didn't you know? That particular dish just didn't quite turn out right, right? Or Christmas time, but well, just didn't quite get what I wanted. You know, that's not exactly what I wanted. Um, and, and I think part of the reason is we build up so much expectation. Like this is going to be wonderful. This is going to be glorious. You know, my kids are coming home. It's going to be perfect, and it's never perfect. Right? The, the, the anticipation, the building up, it's almost like the more you do, the more you're kind of setting yourself up for, uh-oh. Right? Uh, and you know, perhaps you have certain memories. I think this is pretty common. As you get older, you have memories of what Christmas is supposed to be like. You, know, you remember the smell, you remember the feel, you remember the people. And it's like, it never is quite like that. Right? And, and that, that, that leads to disappointment. And by the way, there's a lot of disappointment around the holidays. There's a lot of depression around the holidays, right? And it makes sense. There's a lot of hopes, expectations, anticipation, a lot of reminder that things are not like I thought they were going to be. And so you have a lot of people, therefore, who turn to substances during the holidays. Like, I feel pain. I feel disappointment. Life's not the way I wanted it to go. I need to, to, I need to feel a certain amount of numbness to this pain. I don't want to feel the pain. And so you turn to some substance to try to numb it, to medicate so that you don't have to feel it, right? I've, I've heard that, um, you know, even for those who have a perfect experience, like it was exactly like I wanted, it was perfect. 
it comes to an end. <laughs> like, that's it. The day's over. And now we start back to work on Monday and everything goes back to normal, right? And so there's, a, there's that reality. Like, this is going to end at some point. I've, I've heard stories about people who win championships in sports. I've heard them describe the day after they win the championship is oftentimes one of the most depressing days of their life. You just got everything you've been working for. Yeah, but now what do I do? Like, I've been working for this. I've been given everything for this. I finally got it. I won. Now what? Right? So you, you have people who win seven Super Bowl championships and still in it to try to get number eight. Because you know, I don't know what else to do. Like, I got I to gotta get championships. I got to win. I remember as a kid, the, the day after Christmas was always kind of like, oh, you know, there's no more. We're not going to get together anymore. We're done. We're done. Like, we're, we're, no more presents. This is it. I've been waiting all month, and it's over. And now we got 365 more days to wait until it comes again. So here's the point I'm making. I hope this holiday season is special for you. I hope it's wonderful. And, and even if it is, you know, when it ends, or if it's not as special as you're kind of wanting it to be, hopefully it is, but if it's not, right, or when it, when it just it comes to an end, it's over. Let that be a reminder to you that this is a consequence of living in a fallen world. We live in a Genesis 3 world. We li- this is the pattern. And as Christians, we're not shocked by this. We're not shocked when there's disappointment. We're not shocked when there's a little pain. We're not shocked when our memory of how it's supposed to be, it's not quite like that. That's not shocking to us because we're the ones who know we're not living in paradise. Right? We have a memory of it. There's an echo in our minds of a distant past, a distant paradise where we didn't have to experience this pain and this disappointment. It was right. It was the way things are. And every one of us have a memory of it. Because we're all descendants of Adam. We have an innate memory of the garden and how it was supposed to be. And we have a very real experience of how it's not. But we as Christians have this hope that one day it will be restored. Christ is going to return and we will experience life the way it's meant to be lived. And uh, so this brings us now to talk about the, the hope of paradise. The hope of a future paradise. You know, the, the unraveling of the world is not the last word. We, we wouldn't be here this morning doing what we're doing if we thought it was the last word. We are here this morning because we believe there's hope in the midst of the unraveled world. Let me, let me point out from 1 Kings a couple of ways that we see a glimmer of hope. First of all, we have the prophets. Solomon is the main character of the first part of the book. Elijah is the main character of the second part of the book. Elijah is a prophet of God. Wonderful prophet of God. Great stories. He actually has a ministry to King Ahab, who's a northern king, who's perhaps the worst. He's worse than Jeroboam. And God raises up a prophet to have a ministry in the days of Ahab. In other words, God's at work. And, And there's incredible miracles that happen through Elijah. And he goes to war against the prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel. And, you know, God speaks to him in the still small voice and some wonderful stories with this prophet. But the point is, it's, he is a sign that God is still at work. He's still active. He's still ministering. He's still speaking a prophetic word in the midst of the darkness. 
And it's, it's not too uncommon when I talk to somebody, they'll come to me and they'll say, I, I experience this, I'm experiencing, I just have a great deal of guilt in my life. And I'm, I'm afraid that I've, I'm so guilty that maybe I'm not, I can't be forgiven. Maybe God can't forgive me. And I will often point out to them, A, just the fact that you feel guilt, and B, the fact that you're sitting here talking to me is a really good sign. God is at work in your life, in your heart. You're feeling conviction about these things. You realize you need, you need forgiveness. Like, that's a good sign. Be encouraged by that. God is at work in you. So don't ignore it. Don't sweep it under the rug. Deal with it. Repent of it. You know, get, get, seek the forgiveness you need. But if you're feeling the weight of sin, if you're feeling the weight of guilt, don't let that drive you to despair. Let that encourage you because God's at work in your heart. There's hope. There's light in the midst of the darkness. Um, let me point out another way that we have hope and we see hope here in this, this book. We have God's promise. Look with me at chapter 11, verse 13. This is incredible. Chapter 11, verse 13, God says, However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So the context here, God is describing the consequences of Solomon's sin. The kingdom is going to be taken away from you, but God says, but I am going to give you one tribe. All the kingdom taken, but I'm going to leave you with one tribe. Look at chapter 11, verse 36. Yet to his son, Solomon's son, I will give one tribe, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. Who is the one tribe that God is going to remember because of David? That one tribe is Judah. It's a promise that goes all the way back to Genesis 49, where it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah. God has made a promise. There's something about Judah. And now he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm taking away the kingdom, but I'm going to leave one tribe, Judah. Right? And, and, and this is a promise that's fulfilling 2 Samuel 7. It's a fulfillment of the promises in 2 Samuel 7 that, that David will have a son who will reign on the throne of David forever. And the New Testament is making the argument that Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. Listen, for example, to Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the root of David, who is the fulfillment of these promises. Revelation 21-23 talks about a city, a new city, the new Jerusalem. And it says there's not going to be a sun or a moon there. There doesn't need to be a sun or a moon. Why? Because there's a, a lamp there and the lamp is the Lamb of God. There's a lamp in the city and the lamp is the Lamb of God. Remember the promise here in 1 Kings? There will always be a lamp before me in Jerusalem. God says there will always be a lamp before me in Jerusalem that I will provide from Judah, from David. There will always be a lamp. And the book of Revelation is telling us there's a, there's a city called the New Jerusalem that doesn't have, require a sun or a moon because the lamp is the Lamb. And the Lamb is the lamp that lights it. Who's the Lamb? Jesus Christ. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Root of David. The son of David. And so these prom here's the point. 
The promises made to Abraham, to David, to Solomon are pointing to Jesus and they're fulfilled in Jesus. And I want to point out one other way that this text is pointing us forward to Jesus in the New Testament that I I think is, is pretty incredible. In 1 Kings chapter 9, we've already talked about this, this temple's been built, Spirit of God comes, glory of God, and, and everybody's thinking, this is it. Like, this is the kingdom restored, paradise. It's about to happen. And God warns them and says, it's not. In fact, listen to what God says about the, this building, this temple, His temple. He says, it's going to fall. It's going to fall because of my judgment. Look with me, chapter 9, verse 8. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, why has the Lord done this to the land and to this house? So God is saying, this this temple is going to be demolished. And I can't help but think about Jesus and His disciples, and His disciples thinking, the kingdom of God, this is about to happen. Like the king is here, he's talking about the kingdom. It's coming. It's about to happen right any moment. And, and can, by the way, can I sit at the right hand when this happens? Right? It's about to happen. And I can't help but think about Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives and looking with the disciples across the valley and looking at Herod's temple. And what does Jesus say to them? Not one of these stones is going to be left on top of the other. God's going to bring down that building in judgment. And Jesus is saying it in order to prepare them. Like, you need to know this is going to happen. And when it happens, you'll remember I told you, and it'll remind you, you need to be ready for me because I'm going to return. That's the ultimate point. I'm going to return for you. And when I return for you, I'm going to restore you and I'm going to restore the, the heavens and the earth. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And you're going to reign with me and live with me in the kingdom of God, in the paradise of God. And so Jesus is saying to the disciples, be ready. That's the whole point. This building is coming down, but I'm going to return and you need to be ready for when I return so you can come with me and experience paradise. And that's the same message for us today. Make sure you're looking to Jesus. Make sure you're prepared when He returns so you can experience the paradise you're longing for. Now let's ask this question. Why Jesus? Why is He essential? Why can't I just experience paradise? And Why do I need Him? Because of who He is and what He's done. He's the only one who can undo this unraveled world. He's the only one who can restore things and make it paradise. And we see that. We see that when He came the first time. We see it with His miracles. Think about what the miracles are. The miracles are not little magic shows. The miracles are Jesus showing us what life is supposed to be like. Jesus is rewinding the clock and showing us this is what the Garden of Eden was like. When He heals people, you know, the blind man can see. What is that? That's the way life is supposed to be. There's not supposed to be blindness. That's the unraveled world. The world that God created is a world where there's no blindness, there's no death, there's no sickness, there's no tears of sadness. So when you see the miracles of Jesus, the miracles are just pointing us back. This, he's the, he's the, the Lord over creation. He's the Son of Man. And, and it reminds us of what, what we have a memory of, a distant memory of. And these miracles are pointing us forward and they're saying, this is what life is going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth because there's not going to be blindness and sickness and death. And so we're getting a picture of what life is supposed to be like. So in one sense, the miracles are the most normal thing there is. We think of them as being these anomalies. Wow, a miracle. I can't believe it. No, that, that's what's normal. 
what we ought to say, oh my goodness, is that the unraveling. It's, it's not always been like this, and it's not going to always be like this. Jesus is the only one who can undo the raveling and restore paradise. And the way he does it is incredible. He does it through death. He conquers death. He dies to death. He came to die. He came to undo the fallenness by conquering it, by dying and rising again. And he knew this is what he was doing. He knew this is what he was doing while he was dying. And that's why he says to the thief on the cross, remember what he says to him? Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was providing paradise. He knew he would experience paradise that very day. He knew that thief would experience paradise that very day. Jesus is the only one who can undo the raveled world, the unraveled world, and restore it and make it right. So we can look at the promises made to Abraham, to David, to Solomon, and see how they are fulfilled in Jesus, and that gives us great confidence as we look at the promises that Jesus made that one day He will return. We can be confident that we can take Him at His word because we've seen all the promises fulfilled with His first coming. So it gives us great confidence to trust in His word and His promise, which is what? He will return for us. He will not leave us as orphans. And when He returns for us, He will take us to the new, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, to paradise. Until then, we live in an unraveled world and a painful world and a world where there's a lot of disappointment. And you might be experiencing some of that disappointment right now. I hope you're not. But if you are, be reminded, be encouraged from God's Word today, the King is coming. Paradise is not lost. There is great hope. We have great reason to have great hope of this future paradise. And you can be ready and you can be prepared and you can experience it. And the way you do that is simply by looking to Jesus and trusting in who He is and what He's done for you at the cross. That He conquered death. And if you'll look to Him and trust in Him, you can be prepared. You can be ready for that paradise. Let's pray.